Hey, this is Dan Wonderlich from Defining Grace, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. My guest today is Sophia Agterap. She's the Director of Communications at Vanderbilt Divinity School, and she joins us today to talk about public theology and the role that ministry leaders, both clergy and lay, can play in peace and justice ministries. Well, my guest today is Sophia Agterap. She is the Director of Communications at Vanderbilt Divinity School, and if you Google her name, you will realize that she is a thousand other amazing, cool things, and so I am so great that she has made time to join us today. Sophia, thanks so much for being on the program. It's a pleasure to be with you all this afternoon. Well, all of the things that Google describes you as include a social media expert, a chef, a restaurateur, now the director of communications at Vanderbilt Divinity School, and heavily involved in religious movements, both there in Tennessee and around the country, and even a little bit internationally. But how would you uh, describe yourself as well as your ministry and its context? That's a, that's a great question. Um, the funny or not so funny thing about Google is that it sort of acts as this way to preserve all the things that you've been up to yeah. in the last few years. And so, yeah, my um, I think my interests have evolved, but I think you have to take a little bit of a 30,000-foot view to see how those pieces connect. And so um, communication and higher education have been a part of my life probably over the past 10 years or so. Um, I did some work both at the community college level and at the four-year sort of research institution level working with first-generation college students and working on issues of access to higher ed and both recruitment as well as retention. Um, Some of that work eventually led to communications, which is the work I've been doing probably for the past seven or so years. Um, And then after moving to Nashville, food really became an interest of mine as I left my work at United Methodist Communications and the ways that food um, provides a way to bring people together to build community and conversation around topics Um, an interest that you might not have otherwise been able to gather around. And so that's where the food piece came in. Um, And now I'm the director of communications at Vanderbilt Divinity School, um, which I would say is a progressive school located squarely in the South. And so there's some interesting work ahead of us in the next few years. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, How do you approach preaching and communication in general, uh, both as you as an individual and as someone who's had the opportunity to sort of write copy and language for the denomination and now for a divinity school? Do you have any like mission statements or guiding principles when you approach the the job of communication? Yeah. So, um, you know, I come from a family of clergy and very actively people in the United Methodist Church. My youngest sister is serving in the Pacific Northwest Conference and just accepted a new role as the assistant director for, um, congregational development in that conference. But before that, like, I think she's such a gifted preacher, and I just love listening to her preach. Um, my father is retired United Methodist clergy. Um, my brother-in-law is United Methodist clergy. So we, I come from this sort of tradition of United Methodist clergy, and preaching I don't feel is my gift, but I feel like I have a prophetic word to bring. And mm. so finding ways to get that word out in ways other than sort of preaching from a pulpit has been something that I've been exploring over the last um, over the last few years. So one, I think all we do communicates something, right? It communicates our values, uh, whether whether or not we say it verbally, I think, the ways that we communicate verbally, non-verbally, communicate who we are, what we believe, and what we're about. And so I don't think it's any different in the ways that we preach um, to bring all of those pieces of our lives into what we have to share with others. And so when I think about an approach to preaching and communication, I think about, well, what are all of those pieces that influence 
my life and not just my life, but um, sort of the world and community around me. And, um, you know, you asked about if there was a mission statement regarding principle. There is something that I have carried with me in all of my communications work, and it's this question that I ask myself and that I encourage others to ask themselves as well is, does this particular thing need to be said, and am I the person who needs to say it? Mm. And I think, you know, in this digital age and social media age, there are a lot of times when we don't ask ourselves that question, and we see what happens, and we just kind of spew out all the things that we feel need to be said, but really don't need to be said, or maybe don't need to be said by us. Yeah. And so I think that takes into account privilege and status and all of those pieces. Um, so I try to use that as sort of a guiding principle when I think about what it is that I'm going to share with any sort of audience, whether it's, you know, one-on-one with someone or, you know, something in chapel. That's so true. And, and I think especially on social media, it's difficult because sometimes you feel like you need to speak out on everything and you can get dinged for speaking right. out. And then other times you can choose to be silent because you feel like you're not the right person. And then you can get dinged for not speaking out. Um, that's, of course, where where like the share button or the retweet button can help where you can amplify mm-hmm. uh, other voices. But can you speak a little bit more to that that part of the question of whether or not we're the right person to speak? Yeah, so... <clears throat> I think about um, college and I had this classmate who would always feel like she needed to reiterate what was said, even though it was said perfectly fine by another person. (laughs) But like she always needed to have the last word, even if it was saying almost exactly the same thing. And so I think about with all of the, um, all the information that comes at us daily, like by the second. And I think about all of the information that we have the opportunity to sift through right, on the regular, um, are we adding something to the conversation that is meaningful or valuable or necessary or has someone else said it and maybe can we amplify that voice, like you said, um, a little bit better and would it would it bear more and carry more weight if we were to put our influence or our support behind something that's already out there versus having to say something that has been said like 10,000 times and probably better than what I would have been able to say. Yeah, true. Well, as we shift towards uh, public theology, can you share with us a little bit about your relationship and history that you've had with Peace and Justice Ministries and public theology? How do you understand these concepts? Maybe how do you define some of these terms, and how did you first get involved? Yeah, so I I trace a lot of the ways that I view justice to my dad. My dad, like I mentioned earlier, is a retired United Methodist pastor, but his upbringing was in the Philippines, and so he entered... Um, he entered seminary at the time that um, Ferdinand Marcos, who is a dictator in the Philippines, or was rather, was in power. And so, you know, when I asked my dad what led him to eventually pursue this calling to ministry, you know, um, I think we find ourselves, we found ourselves down similar paths asking the same questions. You know, if if I wanted to pursue this type of work or I wanted to be involved in these types of justice issues, what was the best place for me to do that? And for both of us, it ended up being through the church. Um, I think there are a lot of secular organizations that we could definitely be a part of and that are all doing really good and important work. But as people of faith, for me, being able to examine those questions through um, through theology, through conversations with congregations, and, and even um, having that reflect back on my own faith and what it is that I believed, um, I think was a really important um, base for me. To, to do that work in. And so that's been the relationship between, um, between justice and faith. And so with that upbringing of my dad, you know, we 
we're very much a, a household that welcomed everyone who needed a space to be. Um, we, you know, as college students, like we, he would come to our marches with us. Like I remember going to an immigration march on May Day with him. And so I think that um, justice and liberation theology and those, those concepts and ideas were very much a part of our upbringing. And so, um, you know, looking out for the welfare of others and, you know, who's being marginalized and uh, how can we do work to address all of these pieces, I think was very much a common conversation in our household. And so to see more people being active today and organizing and, and asking these same questions, I think um, is really exciting because I think we're at an interesting time in our country's history where we are being forced to examine, well, is what we're hearing about Christians and people of faith in the public media the same as the, the faith that I believe and that I've been sort of raised to believe where, you know, God loves all, we're called to, you know, seek justice and mercy and the welfare of our city. You know, those, I feel those two pieces have not been very congruent. And I think it's, it's a really interesting time for, for the church and communities of faith to say that's not quite what we believe. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that. How has your experience uh, changed or shifted or grown over the last six months? I know that you've been involved with some of the religious-based movements in your area that uh, I I unfortunately don't know the details well enough to know if they started over these last six months with the change in presidential administrations or if they've just become sort of more organized and more vocal. Can you talk about your experience over these last six months? I also want to note for our listeners um, that that while Sophia is uh, a progressive Christian and she's involved in progressive movements, I want you to listen to her story so that you can pull out applications uh, to apply to however you feel best uh, that God is leading you to be involved in public theology and We'll ask her for some more general uh, tips later. But but for now, Sophia, can you talk about what the last six months, six, seven months have been like for you and the people that you've been working with? Yeah, so I'll, I'll go back to a lot of this having to do with um, our current president and how they were elected into office. And, you know, I'll, I'll remind you and other folks that Nashville um, has not been home to me. I moved here about five years ago from Seattle, you know, and, and having been raised in this more progressive liberal bubble, um, I got pretty comfortable. And so living in the South, uh, there's very much a contrast to the ways that people look at religion and faith and even their own sort of political activism, whatever that looks like, is very different. So it's a very stark contrast to what I experienced in the Northwest. Oh, yeah. But part of it was also, in terms of my involvement with movements here in Nashville, I considered Nashville a place that I lived and worked, but I wasn't planting any roots in because I didn't know how long I was going to be here. I mean, I moved here for work. Um, that was sort of my mentality. But after um, Trump was elected president and after seeing all of the platforms that he stood on leading up to his election, you know, I really started to ask myself, at what point do I feel sort of moved enough to do something and to participate in something else mm. in, in opposition to what he was saying he stood for? Right. And then after um, after he was elected and, you know, the travel ban was announced and I attended uh, a rally in front of our senator senator's offices, Senator Alexander and Corker, um, just in opposition to that ban. I looked around and I saw very few, at least identifiable um, clergy or sort of religious leaders. And in Seattle, you know, we have a church council of greater Seattle and we have a number of um, interfaith movements where when you see demonstrations, people are coming out in their 
sort of religious garb. Yeah. Um, and it was not as visible in Nashville. And so then I started to ask for a topic as important as immigration and discrimination, where are our faith leaders? You know, where are communities of faith um, on this issue? And so that sort of set me down um, this path, asking lots of questions and, and then starting to ask, well, who's doing this work already? You know, do we have an interfaith alliance already set up in Nashville? What communities and leaders are already working on these issues that I can join in on? And so by asking those questions, I started to connect with other folks um, doing similar work. Um, and around that time, or a month or two later, we had Reverend William Barber out of North Carolina, who is the outgoing um, president of the NAACP, but who has also been in charge of the Moral Mondays um, movements at their capital. He came out and led a training here um, in Nashville at one of our United Methodist churches. And I think for a lot of folks in that room, even though there were different groups of people working on different things, we, by the end of that training, had decided we need to do something more. We need to escalate what's been happening so that the issues that we've been fighting for for so long are back on the, you know, on the media circuits or back in public conversation. And so around that time, um, well, for the past several years, we've been calling for an expansion of Medicaid because our state was one of those that chose not to. Mm. Um, and, you know, that was the week before Holy Week, and we decided, well, next, next week is Holy Week, and in that tradition, let's, let's do some disruption. And so we had a sit-in at the governor's office and were eventually arrested, and the case was just dismissed last week. <laughs> wow. Um, and so that was sort of the, the... The group had been meeting already before. There was a moral movement group in Tennessee um, that had been meeting, but I think that was sort of the turning point for our group to say, like, let's band together, let's, let's step this up and see um, how we can move the needle on a number of issues, but most importantly, because that was the current conversation in healthcare. I would imagine that you're 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 so motivated by passion that you're willing, obviously, to to pay the consequences of being arrested and going through the process, even if it ends up being dis, dismissed. But that doesn't mean it's not right. necessarily scary or uncomfortable in the moment. So I was wondering if there are there are there any moments where uh, you either questioned why you were doing it or you weren't you weren't questioning, but it's it was still scary or or still kind of overwhelming. It was. I mean, you 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 prepare for these things with the knowledge that this could lead to arrest and then you don't know what happens after that, right? You could actually sit in jail. You could just be cited and then told to come back to court. Um, but you sort of prepare yourself mentally for that. But when you have a group of 15 people sitting on the floor of the governor's, not even office, but right outside his office in sort of the receiving area, reading scripture, singing spiritual songs. And then you have, you know, just, like 10 state troopers surrounding you, it starts to feel a little like, what are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> it's going to happen. Um, you know, and so, so that piece feels a little, you, you definitely feel the power dynamic, right? You have people who have come for a peaceful demonstration, peaceful nonviolent demonstration who are seated in this sort of posture of, we're not trying to be aggressive, but at the same time, not willing to leave quite yet because we couldn't get an audience with, with the governor. And so, I mean, everyone was nice and generally um, quite pleasant, but there, I think there are things that you, you just don't prepare for. One of the women who was with us um, is in her seventies and she was arrested um, because she thought she could leave to go use the restroom. And when she came back to get in the room, she wasn't allowed in. And so then you just start to see like members of your group sort of peeled off and, but it's also this very community 
bonding experience because we appeared in court together twice. And, um, you know, a number of the folks in that group were clergy who are serving in uh, in churches in the city. And so it's good to know that we have people in positions of leadership in our churches that are willing to say, this is not right, and I'm willing to put my body on the line for this. And, and let's talk about that. Uh, earlier this year, we had Jim Harnish on the program, and he talked about the relationship mm-hmm. between politics and preaching and the importance of... Uh, it responsibly mixing politics into what we say from the pulpit. But can you explain why you yeah. feel it's so important for religious leaders of all stripes, progressive, conservative, in between, to take their faith out of the pulpit and into the public square? And then if if you had any advice or encouragement that you would give to folks who feel uh, the itch or the desire, or the pull or the calling to be to be involved, what might you what might you say to them? Yeah, so one, I really appreciate you sort of making that distinction between or, or just the acknowledgement that we are from a, var- a variety of religious um, traditions and backgrounds and political persuasions. And I use the term progressive just because that's a term that people understand. But I am very much of the camp that these are moral issues. And I think a lot of people who are in these movements and even Reverend Barber himself would say that these are moral issues. This is not an issue of um, of left and right, of Democrat or Republic, of conservative or progressive. But these are very, very clear in our Christian tradition and even in, um, you know, in holy texts of other faiths that we are called to, you know, love and serve God, love and serve our neighbor and seek the welfare of, of the city. Right. And so what does that look like today? Um, what has that looked like over the past few centuries, I think has ebbed and flowed a little bit, but I think, you know, for, for people to say that, um, the reason why they don't preach on justice issues from the pulpit or don't have those conversations in their congregations is that it's political. Um, I think it's a little bit of a cop-out. I think there are ways to do it where it doesn't seem like, you know, we're not trying to endorse certain parties. I think there are some parties or, you know, political leaders that tend to uh, lend themselves to particular topics. But I think if we shift the ways that we look at those issues and look at it from a moral standpoint and say, um, is what we are doing or passing harming our neighbor, um, then we really have to ask the hard questions of if that is the case, how do we stand up for that person or that group, or how do we say no to this particular piece of legislation so we know um, and can share with our city, you know, in our congregation and know in certain terms that this is not what God would want. And I think if we look at it in those terms, it's very clear what we're called to do. And it's not a political thing. And I, I know that it's scary, and especially as you know, someone living in the South now where um, to see a clergy person get arrested is like, oh my gosh, who yeah. are they, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think it's so important because these are moral issues. You know, access to health care, access to affordable health care is a moral issue. The, the cradle-to-prison pipeline is a moral issue. You know, resources for our, our students is a moral issue. Housing is a moral issue. So I think there are a number of issues that people could say are political because our political pundits and leaders, I mean, use all of those issues as a platform. But I think as people of faith who are called to care for our neighbors, um, it's a moral issue more than anything else. And if we don't see it as that, you know, like if we don't see it as a moral issue, then how can we read our holy text and see what's happening in society together and not be troubled by that and not feel compelled to do something or say something, you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and I was going to jump in and say that uh, even earlier this year, Andy Stanley, who uh, I would imagine is is fairly conservative, maybe moderate conservative, but is one of the most non-political people uh, that speaks on behalf of the uh, of the church. But he did a whole sermon mm-hmm. on refugees earlier this year and explained the refugee process to the congregation. And while he kept saying, I'm not saying what you should think, I'm not saying what side you should take, at least through my lens and my ears and the way that I saw it and heard it, he, he was he was kind of without saying, saying that, you know, the refugee ban was maybe not the most biblical thing that could come out of the mm-hmm. White House. And so if you even have folks like Andy Stanley, uh, you know, being willing to speak up on, on certain issues, and again, it's, it's, not, it's not because uh, a president is in office or a party is in office. There, there are plenty of things mm-hmm. under all parties and all leaders, but there comes a point in time where not speaking up because we see it as political or because our congregations might see it as political, that, that is a little bit of a cop-out, I would imagine. Yeah, and then we're we're also not providing our congregations an opportunity to look at these issues sort of side by side. What does my faith compel me to do? What am I seeing in society and how are these congruent or not, you know? And I think when we don't talk about it, one, we're sending a message that we actually don't care about the issue, yet we read about sort of the plight of the foreigner, the sojourner, the widow, the orphan a stranger in our midst, right? And then we, we see this happening, like, in real life, and we don't find ways to bridge those pieces together. And not to say that our congregations can't, but I think we miss an opportunity to have some really interesting conversations that could lead to discipleship and faith formation that we just, you know, have decided is not going to be our thing. And so that some of that, like, really troubles me. And And I think that, you know, lots of different groups that operate um, political parties and and such have sort of relied on being able to separate rich and poor, Democrat, Republican, on lots of grounds. But there are, you know, there are a number of issues that on moral grounds we can come together on. And, and what power would that have if we decided that because of our beliefs, because of our Christian faith, um, we decided that we're not voting on party lines, but we're voting on 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 these moral grounds, and that as Christians we've been raised to believe this, and um, so no, I'm not going to stand for a ban against a certain groups, or I'm not going to stand for a ban against um, access to certain you know to certain rights and privileges yeah. because someone doesn't believe that they should have them. And so I think we have a real opportunity um, to to create a movement of people not based on not based on party lines, but on moral grounds. Yeah, and it's frustrating because it does make voting harder because you do actually have to pay more attention. Uh, you have to, to listen for what folks are actually saying. And as they always say, like, you know, the White House is one thing, but your state houses and your local representatives uh, are often where the real day-to-day changes can be made. Uh, and so, you know, <laughs> we have to pay attention uh, to all those as well. Well, one of our one of our most popular episodes uh, in our archive was my interview with Derek Scott. And part of it is just that Derek mm-hmm. is an awesome guy. But um, he explored ordained ministry and ultimately felt called to remain a layperson. And I received multiple messages from listeners who just connected so much with Derek's story because they have felt that same call to do something, but it didn't ultimately blossom into ordination. And they sometimes some mm-hmm. some folks really struggle with that or maybe even felt like it was a failure that they weren't listening I know that you have gone through your own path of discernment uh, can you talk about that and and I also know that you feel strongly about the role that lay people can play in public theology so why don't we kind of jump into that pool yeah so I um, 
maybe eight or so years ago, seven or eight years ago, maybe not, <laughs> um, entered the um, this sort of period of discernment through the United Methodist Church, um, exploring um, my call to ordained ministry. And, you know, I have always believed that the lay people, the laity are where it's at. I think the lay folks don't get a lot of credit and don't get a lot of opportunities to be in leadership when, you know, for a lot of times, like, they will carry the church. Um, and we put so much emphasis on ordained persons, on clergy, that we often forget about our lay people who are doing amazing, amazing things. And so I entered the process of exploration and discernment sort of with that in mind, committing to committing to the fact that this was a period of discernment. So I don't know everything. Let's see where God is leading me and calling me um, and revealing to me as I, you know, explore these conversations with my district committees and have conversations with people about what it means to be an ordained person. Um, and so I went through all those requirements and, you know, did all the papers and that sort of thing. Um, and after living in Nashville for maybe a year and a half or two, kind of came to this realization that, um, you know, should I finish the ordination track or process and become a, an ordained deacon, that wouldn't have really changed my call. Um, as a deacon, you know, you're, you're called to serve the church and the world. You've got kind of one foot in in each of those spaces, um, you know, and I didn't, I felt that the discernment process did its job, like at the end of it, I, or what I felt was the end of it, um, I felt the same as I did as I entered, mm. in that I was called to serve God in lots of different ways, and being an ordained person in the United Methodist Church um, wasn't going to impact that in any way. And so I, I just chose to, to leave the process voluntarily. And in doing that, found the Deaconess and Home Missioner Order, which is now a recognized lay order in the United Methodist Church. Um, and that is a lay order of people called to a life of ministries and love, justice, and service. So in the same ways that I felt compelled to explore um, ordination as a deacon in the United Methodist Church, I can do this as a lay person. Um, and so, you know, they, they pay for all of your education, actually. So this is a little plug for that that particular order is if <laughs> yeah. this is something you're interested in, yeah. they will pay for all of your seminary classes that you need. And they take it seriously. You know, I think people who find themselves in this lay order are people who have explored different um, ways of being involved in leadership and ministry with the United Methodist Church. But this has been a real community of people who, they're young folks, or people who are in their 60s, um, who all feel a strong call to, to, to ministry, specifically in love, justice, and service. And so... Um, I feel uh, really fortunate to be a part of this community, and God willing, like all of my paperwork and everything gets completed and passed, I get to be commissioned at the United Methodist Women's Assembly next year. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. Well, you'll have to let us know how yeah. it goes, and I'll, I'll share it with I the will. listeners. Well, lastly, in this main section of the interview, uh, you had the chance to be interviewed by the USA Today, which is so cool. And uh, right at the end of the video, you made a distinction between being called to stand with and not just for people and causes we believe in. I was uh, hoping that you could explain and clarify this distinction and why it's so important to you. I think, especially when working with uh, communities that are already marginalized and issues that are already sort of very heightened in terms of emotional, political energy, it's really important to remember um, the privilege and power that we hold in those situations and how that impacts any of the work that we do with 
a particular community or a particular cause. And so, you know, when, for example, we were planning this sit-in at the governor's office and we tried to come up with a list of, you know, who would speak and share stories and who would even lead um, lead that particular sit-in, we wanted to make sure that the people whose voices were heard were the people who were most directly impacted. Clergy can say a lot of things, you know, lay leaders can say a lot of things because they've studied theology and they, you know, work with folks who are in these situations that are um, most impacted. But it was really important to make sure that um, we heard from people who were directly impacted by um, the lack of access to um, to affordable health care. And so the people who spoke, one was an Army um, veteran who was diagnosed with cancer, so she's currently a cancer patient. The other person is the mother of a woman who did not get the care that she needed in time and eventually passed away. And so I think it's really important that we are lifting up and giving people who are most directly impacted the spaces to share their story. And I think that's where, I think that's where a lot of the power is and the ways that we can change hearts and minds is by hearing stories. Because I think that gives validity to your movement too, right? If all you have is talking heads and people who are scholars and have studied this particular issue or who know how to preach about it is one thing. And I think there's a time and a place for that. But when we don't give space to the people who, who have life experiences that that can impact um, how a particular position or legislation is viewed. I think we're really doing um, doing any sort of movement a disservice. And I think mm-hmm. of, I think the same way when it comes to the work that we're doing around immigration. If you don't have anyone who is an immigrant who has been impacted by um, the threat of DACA being um, being shut down, um, if you don't have anyone who you know, has had an undocumented person in their life. I think those are all really important questions to ask as we, um, as we engage in these, uh, in these conversations and actions and movements. And so, you know, it's one thing I think to preach about something in church and maybe another thing to invite someone to speak on their experience. And again, there's also a fine line of sort of having that same person be the token, you know, whatever all the time. But I think it's really important that we ask these questions is, you know, back to the back to that sort of guiding principle that I shared earlier. Am I the right person to say or do this, um, or can someone else do it better? That's great. Well, we have a set of questions that we ask all of our guests, and the first one is: Do you have a favorite or most challenging communication experience? I think the most challenging experiences where I'm speaking or preaching in front of people are people who I know, just because I feel like there's a little bit more vulnerability. You know, it's one thing to preach in front of people you've never met before and you might never see again, but to preach in front of um, people who know you, I think is a very vulnerable um, and sometimes challenging uh, experience. But it can be the flip side of that too. It can be like the most exciting and encouraging. Yeah, that's great. Too. That's a great answer. And that's, that's unlike <laughs> any answer we've had for that question so far. That's, that's really nice. Do, do you have a preference for Christmas Eve or Easter? I know you probably haven't had a chance to preach either one, uh, but I, I find it so interesting that most pastors uh, and, and ministry folks that we've had on the show have a preference for one or the other. So my, if I can veer a little bit off, it's, it's, uh, it's whole, for me, it's Holy Week. Like that is mm. sort of my favorite. If I were to pick any sort of um, Christian or church tradition or holiday, or observance in the in the calendar, it would be Holy Week leading up to Easter. <laughs> there you go. All right. I think there's some, there's something just really, um, really central to to I think my own faith. Um, kind of traveling that week with with um, with Jesus um, and being reminded of our own humanity and 
and this um, savior who we believe in as, as someone who is, who's experienced sort of the, the range of human emotion and experience. Well, who have been some of the most impactful preachers or non-preacher communicators in your life and why? Oh, uh, I'm, I'm, this is cliche, but I'm like a sucker for um, all kinds of TED Talks. And so I don't have necessarily a favorite. Um, in terms of preachers, I've been listening to Reverend um, Otis Moss III, who is at Trinity United Church of Christ in the Chicago area. Um, and I've really enjoyed the ways that he sort of bridges community development, lots of different justice issues, and um, theology together. That's wonderful. Do you have any books, podcasts, or other resources that you would recommend our audience check out? Reverend William Barber has um, a book out called The Third Reconstruction, and he really calls his readers to this new moral movement, and I think it's what we're seeing kind of come up across the country today. So it's kind of a, a great handbook for people who are interested in kind of finding out the history of, of some of the issues and the ways that both slavery, reconstruction, voting rights are all tied together. And then how as people of faith do we take all of that into contact with what we're seeing happen today? But I think it's also a great piece for people who have never been involved in any sort of movement to kind of get a big picture. Um, so that's, that's something that I'm reading uh, right now. And then in terms of podcasts, I like to stretch my brain a little, and my husband is also a scientist, so um, I like to listen to science stuff, but I also like to listen to, like, a number of NPR podcasts, Pop Culture Happy Hour. Oh, yeah, they're great. Yeah, so I've got lots of, um, you know, things like Hidden Brain that kind of get at sort of the social science behind why and what we do. Well, and then there's also, of course, like On Being with Krista Tippett. Um, mentioning Krista Tippett reminded me um, you know, when we talk about public theology and what that means, for me, the way I look at that is, you know, I think it was Carl, Carl Barth that said, you know, we look at, we, we sort of look at society or issues with the Bible in one hand and, you know, like a newspaper in the other. And so I feel like <clears throat> that's kind of our, our theological task these days, or at least one of them, is to look at what's happening in society and in the world and in our neighborhoods. Um, with, you know, our holy text in one hand and, and the newspaper in the other, um, and, and look at the ways the two overlap or or in opposition with one another and the ways that we find the spaces that we can speak into or are called to speak into. Um, and then um, I think that has, for me, that has that has led to a lot of what why I do what I do these days. And working here at Vanderbilt Divinity School now, we... Um, received a grant from the Henry Luce Foundation, which also funds, is one of the funders for On Being with Krista Tippett. And we are launching a public theology and racial justice collaborative this fall. And so it's trying to be a space and a clearinghouse very much for these types of conversation on, on race and politics and faith and theology and the ways all those sort of bump into one another. Well, and lastly, if there are folks that want to get in touch and say hi, or if they want to follow your work, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, so um, I'm on Twitter at Sophia Chris, and that's Chris with a K, so S-O-P-H-I-A-K-R-I-S. Um, you can also visit my website at SophiaChristina, again with a K, dot com. Um, and I'm happy, as always, I mean, um, I'm happy to chat with folks about anything from what apps do you use to create these communications pieces to like larger conversations? Um, so I always try to make myself available for those things because I feel like 
communication is one of those things that you don't, especially if you work for a church or nonprofit, like you don't get super great training. And so I'm always happy to resource people who find themselves in these types of roles and just don't have the resources. Yes, Sophia is is a social media and communications wizard. And so we, we have had her in this very deep and, and important conversation today. But even if you're just like, how do I make images for Twitter? Like she's she's certainly yeah. one of the ones to go to. Uh, she's uh, she's helped me out a bunch. And, uh, and some of the stuff she's taught me, I've written into my blog articles. So we'll just go ahead and say now that, uh, Sophia, you, you deserve a, a good bit of credit for some of the stuff that I know. So thank you for that. Thank oh. you for your time today. Thank you for everything that you've shared. It it means a ton to me and I know our listeners have enjoyed it today as well. Thank you. Um, again, it was such a privilege to be with you this afternoon and to just be one of your colleagues and to get to have these conversations big and small. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.